This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly. Anyone who went to see Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer this weekend will know how much nuclear weapons have changed the world. But paleontologists like Francine McCarthy understand more than anyone how they've altered the Earth. And when I showed the data, there were gasps from the audience. Plutonium from nuclear weapons, industrial waste and human activity more broadly have left such a mark on the Earth that a new epoch called the Anthropocene has been proposed. Anthropo meaning human. Francine and other geologists have been searching for a specific geological site to define this epoch and have found the strongest contender, Crawford Lake in Ontario, Canada. I knew that this unique geologic setting with this annual layering of sediments with very clear indications of vast change in the Earth system caused by the activities of humans. There really is no other lake like it on the planet. What is it about this unassuming lake that holds the secrets to this period of history? From hydrogen bombs to hen's bones, how do we define the Anthropocene, the beginning of the human era on Earth? I'm Ian Sample, science editor at The Guardian, and this is Science Weekly. Damien Carrington, you're the Guardian's environment editor. To start with, tell me about the epoch we're potentially leaving behind, the Holocene. Yep. So the Holocene is the last 11,700 years, which goes back essentially to the um, end of the last ice age. 
And of course, what's very special about it is that the entire human civilization that we live in now has developed in that period. The other thing that's really important about it is that during that period, until recently, the climate was really stable, you know, and that allowed big civilizations to develop quite easily. We didn't have to cope with changing climates in, in the way that, uh, you know, previous uh, Homo sapiens have. Researchers also talk about wanting to mark the start of the Great Acceleration. What do they mean by that? So Great Acceleration is a kind of term which describes the really extraordinary changes that happened after the Second World War. There was an explosion in industrial activity, in, in manufacturing, in plastic production. Population started growing uh, pretty rapidly. So when you look at pretty much any graph, whether it's you know, CO2, nitrates in the ocean, a whole bunch of other things, you definitely see an acceleration around that time. Certainly the signs of change all around the world um, has led to you know, humanity becoming a geological superpower. We affect the air, the water, the land, and so are the dominant force on Earth. So that's the sort of term they used to try and summarize that kind of big step change in humanity's impact on the planet. So when geologists set about trying to find one location that defines this new epoch, what sort of things are they looking for? It's a good question. So geologists call it a golden spike. And so what they mean by that is they want something really big and obvious and global and synchronous. So it happens at the same place everywhere. They uh, actually looked at 12 candidate sites. So one was an ice core from Antarctica, but uh, in the end that didn't win because it's pretty hard to get to. And also being remote didn't have quite the strong signal that they wanted. They looked at a peak bog in uh, the Polish mountains. Um, they looked at uh, even a sort of uh, an urban records uh, underneath Vienna, uh, but in the end, you know, they went for this lake. There was there was quite a close contender in China um, as well in terms of another lake which showed quite nice annual sedimentation. But in Crawford Lake, the uh, sedimentation I think has different colours on different uh, times of the year, so that was certainly helpful. I suspect it's probably been more accessible because it was quite near um, a big city as well. Damien, last week you reported that after a whittling down process, Crawford Lake in Canada prevailed. Tell me about the lake in detail. Like, How did it form and why is it so special? So Crawford Lake uh, is a sinkhole in uh, limestone rock. So it's a relatively deep hole that's dropped down as uh, you know, rocks been eroded underneath. And the fact that it's relatively tall compared to its area, so it's about 24 metres deep, and only two, two and a half hectares or so uh, in area is really important. And the fact that the lake is deep, it means that the, the waters at the top don't then get mixed up with the waters at the bottom. You know, if the wind comes along and mixes the water around, th those, those disturbances never get down to 24 metres. And so what happens is that when material from the streams and from the atmosphere floats down into the water, it comes down all the way down through the water columns and then settles on the sediment at the bottom. What you get is this kind of very clear and, and clean succession of layers and then the records of um, you know, the, the proxies they're using for the Anthropocene like... Um, uh, plutonium isotopes or, or carbon particles from coal-fired power stations and so on just kind of remain in the layers they should be and don't get mixed up. I wondered if you could talk us through some of those different features um, in a little bit more detail, Damien. I mean, you mentioned plutonium and these carbon particles. I think nitrates may come into it as well. What, what are the sort of different compounds and elements that come into all of this? Yeah, so um, the geologists on the Anthropocene Working Group were looking for 
signals, you know, materials that would accumulate in the um, sedimentary record, which really importantly would be kind of global and would appear at the same time in all the different parts of the world. So principal among them was um, these plutonium isotopes, which were blasted into the atmosphere from hydrogen bomb tests. So they began in 1952, and then there was a test ban treaty in 1962. So there was just this decade when the world was exploding, these hydrogen bombs, plutonium isotopes were being blasted into the atmosphere, floating all around the world, and then settling down into the sediments. Yeah, that plutonium or those isotopes where they've been seen in the geological record before. So that's a really good signal. There's also something called spheroidal carbonaceous particles. And what these are, it's a type of fly ash, but it's a very uh, hard and resistant type of fly ash, which is only produced by high temperature combustion of coal or heavy oil in power stations. And again, because you know, it's taking place all over the world, pretty much those will go up into the atmosphere, settle down. So that's another nice marker for potentially the start of the Anthropocene, but perhaps the, the most fun one in a way is um, chicken bones from the uh, broiler chicken, which uh, is eaten by the billion around the world. Production of that was you know, turned into kind of battery farming essentially after the Second World War, and uh, are now you know, by far the dominant bird species on the planet. They have a different morphology to their bones, and so they could actually be quite a good fossil for determining the start of the Anthropocene. They certainly haven't been short of signals to look for, for signs of this sort of human domination. I mean, looking specifically at these plutonium isotopes, people might be surprised that that was really the deciding factor. What was the thinking behind that? So the thinking behind it was that it was a relatively short and sharp signal. So some of the signals which were also considered certainly started or at least you know accelerated very rapidly around 1950 or so but they haven't finished they haven't ended you know they've got a kind of long tail or are still being emitted the really nice thing about these plutonium isotopes from the hydrogen bonds is that they stop essentially in 1962 there was some tests i think after that underground but in terms of atmospheric testing it ended there so you've got a kind of a pretty short sharp beginning and an end from 1952 to 1962 and the fact that these uh, things were blasted into the atmosphere meant that they could circulate the globe fairly rapidly. And so you get this synchronous signal of these isotopes floating down onto the planet, into the ocean, onto the land, pretty much all at the same time. So that makes it a, a perfect proxy or, or, or signal of the uh, Anthropocene. And is this the first time an epoch has been defined by an element? I mean, it still has a bit of a precedent, the, probably the most famous uh, boundary between a um, geological period is between the Cretaceous and the tertiary, which is when the dinosaurs were wiped out by a giant meteorite strike. And the key signal that geologists use to determine that boundary is a spike in the presence of a, a rare element called iridium. And the reason they used that was because it's actually pretty rare, or at least very dilute in the, in the Earth's crust, but it was pretty rich in this uh, meteorite that hit the planet. So again, you've got this kind of shower of iridium around the world. So that defines the uh, Cretaceous tertiary boundary. And in a sense, they've used uh, a similar method to define the Anthropocene boundary. Obviously, a lot of geologists are going to welcome this decision, but not everyone's convinced, right? I mean, what are some of the reservations that you've heard? So there's there's a couple. So one is like, do you need the Anthropocene at all? And certainly some geologists and other scientists have argued that despite the very clear evidence, you know, that we've talked about in terms of humanity's changes on the planet, is it really the same as, you know, a kind of 
meteorite hit that kind of wipes out half the planet or, or something like that, perhaps it's not a big enough change. I mean, I, personally, I don't agree with that. And I think most geologists probably think that we have changed the planet in a sufficient degree. The other big controversy, I think that's uh, more controversial, should we say, is, is, is when do you choose it to be? I spoke to one scientist, Mark Maslin, uh, his, his preferred date for the Anthropocene would have been 1610. And the reason for that was that was when the Europeans invaded the New World, colonialized uh, South America and, and North America. And what happened then was a colossal genocide, essentially. I mean, you know, millions and millions of people died in South America because of the disease that was brought over. And you can see that again in the geological record because they stopped farming and stopped taking down trees to make farmland. And so there's actually a sort of spike downwards in this global CO2 record. Maybe you could choose the start of agriculture, you know, which is uh, many thousand years ago. So what happens next? How does this become official? And if it will become official? Yeah, so um, it is not official yet. And as geologists like to take their time, as you can imagine, there's a series of votes. So it has to go through the Subcommission on Quaternary Stratigraphy. That's the people who look after the geological time record for the most recent period, back to about 2.6 million years. Then it has to get voted through the International Stratigraphic Commission, which look after the whole of the geological time scale. And then finally, and this should happen next year, there'll be a vote at the International Union of Geological Scientists, which is the sort of supreme body uh, governing geologists. So you know, geologists uh, are very uh, proud and careful uh, in their guardianship of the geological time record. So the process to change it or to add a new epoch in this uh, case is uh, done very carefully. So if we formally move into the Anthropocene, does that mean that we're essentially in the Anthropocene forevermore, or at least until humanity goes extinct? I mean, it feels like we will forever have this dominant footprint on the planet unless we we do go extinct. <laughs> well, the future's a long time and making predictions about it is is pretty tough. But um, yeah, and I mean, all, all geological ages uh, will, will come to an end one way or another, uh, whether that's just we get swallowed up by an exploding sun at the end of time. But um, uh, yeah, we, so what, what's happened is we're in the quaternary period. Um, we're going to start a new epoch, uh, which is called the Anthropocene. And actually, the very first part of that will be called the Crawfordian Age after the lake. Depending on how we do as a species, whether we blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons or wipe ourselves out with climate change, um, there'll, there'll certainly be an end to the Anthropocene at some point. A few sceptics have argued that previous epochs have been separated by these incredibly long geological timeframes defined purely by geological processes. Is it maybe a bit too anthropocentric of us to herald an entirely new epoch? Well, no, it's a good question because um, you know the the time span of geological periods has got shorter and shorter as we get nearer to the present. But there is there is kind of a good reason for that. So for the first roughly three billion years on Earth, very little happened. There were some microbes, you know, that was it. And then you get to about 600 million years ago and you get this kind of blooming of more complex life in the Cambrian explosion. And then, you know, as you get nearer and nearer, things get, you know, more divided up. That's partly because there's more evidence recorded, because it's more recent, it's had less time to be destroyed by geological processes. And of course, humans have only really had this impact very, very recently, but it, you know, it is pretty big and significant. It's kind of world-changing. And yeah, my, my, my view is we should have an anthropocene. 
And of course, people all over the world are being reminded right now of the devastating impact of human-made climate change with record-breaking temperatures in places like Italy and Spain. Is there any hope that we can turn the tide and eventually usher in a cleaner, greener epoch that's kinder to the planet? Well, that's a big question. Um, we have to hope so. That's the answer. Um, Colin Waters, who's um, at the University of Leicester, a geologist and was actually the chair of the Anthropocene Working Group, did think that you know that there's something around the Anthropocene which does offer a little bit of hope in the sense that if humanity made such colossal changes to the planet as we've seen in such a short space of time, then you know, why can't we do the reverse if we have that power? as a species, as a society, as a civilization, why can't we then use that to turn around our impact and, and, and you know, live more lightly on the earth and preserve the support systems that the, the planet gives us? Damien, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks again to Damien Carrington and Francine McCarthy. And that's all from us. The producers were Josh Anchana, Ned Miles and Kunal Patel. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. The executive producer is Danielle Stevens. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.